In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In 1831, Samuel Isaac Sheroshevsky was born to uh, Jewish-Lithuanian parents. They noticed early on that Samuel had a great uh, skill at languages. He acquired several languages in his early schooling, and so they sent him uh, to a rabbinical school in Germany where he acquired even more languages, became proficient in six or seven uh, at the conclusion of his studies there. While he was there, a friend gave him a copy of the New Testament in Hebrew, and once he read it, he came to believe that Christ was the fulfillment of the prophecies. Uh, Samuel had read this passage from Isaiah 53, among others, and how can you read Isaiah 53 and the life of Christ and not see that he is the perfect fulfillment of those prophecies of ancient Israel? Because at that time, uh, the United States was uh, an epicenter of worldwide evangelism. He came and studied in the United States. He uh, married a woman by the name of Susan Mary Herring, and they uh, took up the call to be missionaries, and they went to China. And in China, Samuel learned Mandarin. He became proficient in reading it and writing it, and he began the process with others of translating all of the scriptures into Mandarin Chinese. He also was uh, one of those that worked to translate the Book of Common Prayer into Mandarin. Due to his service and his willing to be a servant uh, to those in his care, he was nominated to become the Bishop of Shanghai, and he became Bishop of Shanghai in 1875, but only two years later he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and had to give up the bishopric, but he devoted his time at that point full-time to the translation of the Gospels. Where else but in the church can a Lithuanian Jew become the Bishop of Shanghai? Where else can that kind of love for someone that's so far away from those people um, develop that love and uh, that compassion that is required to devote one's life uh, that others would have the gospel in their native tongue? It had so moved Samuel by being able to read uh, the scriptures in his tongue that he devoted his life to it. And so what were those prophecies? What was it that Isaiah had written in, in chapter 53 here? What had he written in uh, the rest of his uh, beautiful prophetic book? Uh, he gives us the exact description of what it is that Christ fulfills in his ministry. And what is it that Isaiah talks about? You remember that Isaiah was a member of the royal family of Judah. You remember that at this time, about 800 to 750, there has already been the civil war, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Although Isaiah is in that southern kingdom of Judah and a member of the Judean royal family, he has been speaking to northern Israel and he's been warning them about the Assyrians. He's been warning them that they're going to come down and that they're going to invade. And of course, his prescription for them is to devote themselves to the Lord, for them to return to those um, ancient and 
and right practices of the worship of the Lord, uh, they had gone astray in very profound ways and had started uh, to worship uh, demons and to engage in really horrific practices. And so he's calling them back. During Isaiah's lifetime, his prophecy is fulfilled. The Assyrians do take the northern kingdom of Israel. It gets renamed Samaria. And now there is a threat, a real threat to the southern kingdom of Judah, which of course in about 200 years gets fulfilled by the Babylonians. So uh, Isaiah is turning to them and he's telling them, uh, your only hope is in the Lord. And his response to your sin is going to be remarkable. Why is it remarkable? Because if you or I were to talk to a group of people and to say, uh, you have uh, turned away from right action, you have done things you're not supposed to do, you've been belligerent, what would we prescribe? Consequences. We'd say, this is the punishment that you're going to get, right? This is where we turn in our natural selves. We turn to punishment. What's the Lord's response to the people? His response is love. His response is, I'm going to bear your sin and their consequences. It's a radical response by a living God to say that I am going to bear your sin. And, and Isaiah uses every metaphor, every way of describing this miracle of salvation, every tool that he has. And so there's lots of different um, metaphors that are used here. Of course, we have the metaphor of the sacrifice and of the sacrificial system that the people of Judah would have been so familiar with. They would have been, uh, of course, intimately familiar with the temple and with the the animal sacrifices that were being given. And of course, they would have uh, been familiar with the Passover sacrifice and, and what it meant for that Passover lamb to be shed. You'll remember that this is the lamb that they killed to remember uh, that miraculous bringing out of Egypt and the, the death that happens. And, and we get uh, for us told this remarkable kind of juxtaposition of what happens with blood that's been sacrificed. The, the ancient Jews understood the profaneness, the dirtiness of blood better than anybody. They knew that blood carried disease and there are much of the Levitical code um, uh, turn to that, right? The danger of blood and that uh, bloodborne illness causes. And so there was a great warning against that. Yet they take blood in order to do what? To cleanse. See, it's not that they were supposed to kill the lamb. Sometimes we have this idea that the sins were put onto the lamb, that the lamb is killed, right? That there's some anger that's required and a killing of the lamb. But that's not the the Passover sacrifice at all, is it? There's nothing about the sins of the community being put onto the lamb. There's nothing about its death itself really being remarkable. It's the blood that's remarkable, and it's blood that cleanses, and it's put onto the doorpost as a way of cleansing the family. So then Isaiah adds to that this incredible understanding of this, of this animal sacrifice where he says that, uh, that he will bear your sins. And he says this over and over again in lots of different ways. You'll see uh, right here at the beginning of chapter 53, verse 4, uh, that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What's the image that he's using here? The image is one of a, a kind of a pack animal, isn't it? That we're supposed to take our sins and sorrows and we're supposed to load them onto our Savior, right? That he's going to carry them. And it gets said over and over again. Um, down in verse 6, it says um, that he has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Again, it's, uh, he's been laid on like a pack animal. Again, uh, down in verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. And then in verse 12, he bore the sin of many. So five times we read that he is born, he is carried, he is laid on, he bears, and he bore the sins. Five times he gives us this metaphor of him taking, the Father taking our sin and laying it upon Christ for him to carry for us. And yet so often we don't want to do it. We don't want to give it to him. We want to keep it, right? We keep our sin and we kind of treat it like a pet, right? We treat our sin and our consequences and we hold on to it. And we say, no, no, that's mine. I'm going to keep that. Nobody else touch it. These are my special little sins, my special little consequences, my way of living. I don't want to confess them. I don't want to get mercy for them. I'm going to hold on to them, right? And, and we're not willing to give them up and we're not willing to give them to a Savior who would carry them to where they're supposed to go, uh, which is uh, to hell and for him to bring us up out without them into everlasting life. So he is bearing upon himself as this servant, as this pack animal. God has made himself a pack animal on our behalf. And this lowliness, this service to us within our sin, while we are in sin, is what is so um, dramatically remarkable in the gospel lesson. In, in chapter 10 now, in Mark's gospel, as Jesus is again describing for them how he is the one who will bear the sins of many, uh, just before this, he has told them that, uh, that he will die and that he will rise again. This is the third time in Mark's gospel that he has prophesied his own death and resurrection. The third time. Is that a significant number, do you think? Three? Yeah, maybe so, right? So this is the third and final time, and, and we're right before the triumphal entry at this point in Mark's gospel. So he's just about to make his way to Jerusalem. He's told them for the third and final time, prophesied his death and resurrection. As soon as he does that, what's the response on the part of the disciples? What kind of an office can I get? Right? Can I get the... Okay, we're going into your kingdom. Great. Can I get the corner office? you have any good jobs for me? Do they come with fancy clothes? What, what am I going to get out of all this? Right? They've totally missed the gospel message. Right? They've totally missed that they're being called to be servants. And they're missing it as juxtaposed with, it's put right next to, contrasted with, the lowliness and the service that Christ des describes in his death. So they're looking for power and glory, while Christ is going to his death as a servant, are put right next to each other so that we can see um, how dramatic they are in comparison. And of course he tells them, uh, or asks them rather, are you able to drink my cup and to receive my baptism? What does he mean by that? The cup that he drinks is the cross, right? The cup that he drinks is the cross. That's his death. The baptism that he's baptized with, of course, is his death and his resurrection. Baptism is for us the same, the same message that uh, Christ's death and his uh, life in the womb of the virgin conveys to us. They're all the same. He goes into the womb of the virgin and he breaks forth. He goes into the baptismal waters and he breaks out. He goes into the virgin tomb and he breaks forth. 
Again and again, Christ takes all of creation, he descends with it, he dies with it, and he resurrects, he breaks forth. And so he's saying, this is the baptism that I'm about to receive. Can you do it? And they say, yes, we can. And he says, actually, you're right. You can. But not by your power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because in Pentecost, it becomes uh, able for them. They become enabled in order to die. And of course, James is killed brutally. And John is tortured and imprisoned. And so they do receive the cross. They do receive that death. And they do it, both of them, in service of their people. They do it in service of the churches that they're ministering to. So they fulfill that role of the servant. And Jesus says um, that they have to be slave and to serve to be a ransom for many. And this is exactly the model of the apostolic life. This is the model of the Christian life that we see get told again and again and again. How do we recognize a saint? How are we able to look at Sharashevsky's life and say, oh, that's a saint's life? Because he's modeling for us the life of Christ. Because he's living, we're able to say, oh, look, there's the life of Christ again. He's able to be a servant and a slave for others. So how do we do that? How do we enter into that holy life? How do we become saints? How do we uh, make it so that we're willing to give up uh, to allow Christ to bear our sins? How are we able to allow him to take those from us and to, to live that new life? The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says that the first thing that we have to do is we have to get close. We have to draw near. We have to get close. And we choose lots of things to get close to, don't we? We want to get close to our careers. We want to get close to our hobbies. We want to get close to other people. We're always choosing things to get close to, right? And we're going to get close uh, when we're in need to politicians. Are they going to save us? Our military? Our economy? Our friends? Our family? Where are we going to get help in times of need? Because times of need will come. We don't have the... um, the the benefit of being naive, do we? We know that storms will come. We talked about uh, last week that, that wonderful image from Master and Commander, that sailor who's up in the rigging of the ship. You remember that? And he has tattooed on his knuckles, hold on one hand and fast on the other, right? Because he's up in the rigging and the, the ship is his life. They're far out to sea. And as he's waving in the storms so that he's over this side of the sea and over that side of the sea, if he doesn't hold on to that rigging onto that home, uh, then he's sure to perish. This is his home, his life. And so like a sailor in the rigging, we too have to hold fast to Christ. We have to hold on to him. We have to hold on to him carrying our burden, to the benefits that he has provided for us. We have to hold fast to him and to his ways. And I've seen it over and over and over again. We cannot convey this message to people that are already in grief, that have already um, entered the storm and they haven't drawn near. Right? If somebody is in their grief or they're in some trauma or they're in some dangerous situation, they're at the end of their life or there's something really scary happening, this is not the time when they can say, oh yeah, Christ, t- teach me more about that. Because we can't learn in those kinds of situations. We're not ready to learn when we're afraid and we're upset when we're in the middle of the storm. Right? That's not when we teach people how to be sailors. Right? You're not going to teach somebody how to climb the rigging during a storm. Right? The guy that you send up during the storm is the guy that's lived his life up in the rigging, right? You don't say, oh, here's a nice time for training. I'll teach you how to climb up now. 
We can't do that. We've got to teach people when the, the waters are, are a little gentler. right? And we've got to take that opportunity to learn how to draw near to Christ during gentle waters, knowing that storms will come. And we're not going to be surprised. We're not going to turn to each other and say, Can you believe the world and the state that it's in? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. We knew that it was coming. It's been told to us over and over and over again. It's been really bad before. And guess what? It's going to be really bad again. We can't be shocked by that. We've been preparing for it. If we haven't been preparing for that, what have we been preparing for? Why have we been drawing near to Christ? Because these bodies will die. Because we have nowhere else to turn. Because there is nowhere else where we can lay our burden down. After he had given up the bishopric, Sheroshevsky returned to his translating work. And he's famous for having said, the first 20 years were really hard. And then I realized that this was the work that the Lord had prepared me for. And he was able to do that typing one finger at a time out of his love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you think that's a sacrifice, imagine the life of his wife, who was with him every step of the way, every day, helping him in and out of bed, in and out of the wheelchair, to his desk, putting paper in the typewriter, enabling him, serving him, so that he could serve the church. They died. They gave up their lives so that others might live. And they did it with gladness.